we know better than other people how often everybody makes mistakes, you know, and we know what to do with mistakes better because we make so many of them. So that you should, if you're feeling overwhelmed by all the information coming out of the pandemic, you should talk to somebody with ADHD because even if we don't follow the best advice, we know what it is. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. We're going to jump right in with episode 58, in which I interview Katherine Ellison. Now, way back in episode 18, I interviewed Tasha Post. And if you haven't yet listened to it, go listen. She is amazing. And she told me about how it was an episode of The Current, a CBC radio show back in 2016, that led her to her own ADHD diagnosis. So after I interviewed her, I went and listened to that old episode, and Katherine Ellison was one of the guests talking about her own adult diagnosis. Katherine is not only a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, she's also written or co-written 10 books. She's a prolific writer on the topic of ADHD for publications like The Washington Post, The New York Times, and Attitude Magazine. And she also recently gave a TED Talk on the gifts of having ADHD during the pandemic. It's a great talk. I've put a link to that in the show notes as well. I'm a huge fan of her memoir about her son and his ADHD diagnosis. It's called Buzz, A Year of Paying Attention. And we talk quite a bit about it in this interview. She also co-wrote the book ADHD, What Everyone Needs to Know. And her most recent book is called Mothers and Murderers. And it's a memoir about a major humiliating mistake she made as a reporter in her 20s and how she recovered and came back stronger than ever. I'm so thrilled to have been able to get this chance to pick her brain about her own ADHD diagnosis, her incredible achievements, and the gifts of having ADHD and learning from our fairly frequent mistakes and missteps. Without further ado, here is my interview with Catherine. Okay, so now you came to your ADHD diagnosis through your son, um, like many women in adulthood. And uh, what were some of the signs that you recall? This was back, this was what, 10 years ago at this point or even longer? Oh my God, more, more. I was 48 years old, so (laughs) it was about um, 16, almost 16 years ago. Um, Wow. But I knew something was wrong or off with me most of my life. So when I got the diagnosis, it was like a gift from my son because suddenly there was a pattern or a logic to my behavior that hadn't been there before. And I also think it was a gift because I got plugged into so many resources and ways that I could learn about myself that like neurotypical people simply don't have. There's, there's this great literature already now with ADHD where you can, I think that there's a lot out there that really helps you live a better life once you know where to look. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm curious, if, having been diagnosed 16 years ago, there's been such a difference, I think, in just how we view it. I mean, even, excuse me, I was diagnosed so, so recently, but it just feels like there's been this you know, mental health revolution um, in the last year or two, uh, especially since the pandemic. And you bring into it social media and memes and TikTok videos. I mean, I can't believe how many women I have interviewed who have come to their ADHD through TikTok. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's so interesting. Right. And so it's fascinating to me, like, is this a proliferation of diagnoses because of the situation that we're in, this sort of collective trauma that we're all have all been experiencing basically since 
the 2016 election or even before, you know, like we've been, this has been five years of some serious trauma in our nation. You know, do you feel like this is, uh, do you feel like this is ADHD or do you feel like there's something else happening? Well, definitely there've been enormous increases in the number of people, kids, especially with depression and um, other mood disorders. Uh, And I think the pandemic really focused us on that. How much, I don't know if ADHD numbers have been climbing recently, but they certainly were for a long time. And and like I mentioned, I think that there is a lot of overdiagnosis and and probably the TikTok um, and, and other social media might feed into that. But at the same time, there is still underdiagnosis. There's a lot of people like you who just only recently found out that this was the explanation for so much of your behavior. And um, I think that especially in uh, classes of people without high incomes and a lot of good access to medical care, there's um, a lot of underdiagnosis there too. Mm, yes, absolutely. Um, and I think too, I think we're, you know, I hear from so many women Thankfully, my experience was quite a positive one coming to my diagnosis, but so many women who are sort of told to lower their expectations by their medical providers, you know, it's just depression, it's just anxiety, it's just motherhood. And you're like, those are all serious things. Yeah, right. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, that there's no correlation there uh, at all. Um, And now also in terms of your, once you were diagnosed and that, that feeling, you know, like looking through your whole life with this new lens, uh, turning over stones here, left and right. Uh, what, what are some of the things that you looked back at your own childhood growing up um, and thought, oh, the, well, the signs were there all along? Well, one thing is I'm, I'm a very anxious person and anxiety is a comorbidity, common comorbidity with ADHD. And I, I think that anxiety can stem from so often feeling out of control and you don't know why, right? So, um, for instance, when I was younger, you know, a foreign correspondent, I walked into a manhole while I was chasing after somebody I wanted to get a quote from and broke my broke my knee, you know, or I once rode my bike into the back of a parked car that, and I would just feel like such an idiot. And I didn't realize that there were actually lapses in concentration that were happening. But it's something that I think when they happen to you, you feel like, um, you, there's a strong instinct to deny them, right? To just say, oh, that was that one-time accident. But, but then they start happening over and over again and you realize there's something going on. Uh, interesting. I, I I can't remember where I first read about it. It was just some of my kind of background research into your uh, how you became a journalist. And you talked about how you would kind of uh, transcribe or you would keep journals of, in your childhood that that was sort of how you first got interested in journalism I found that fascinating that's possible yeah I think that that were there were a bunch of reasons my I have three siblings who are all doctors two of them are psychiatrists which tells you something about our family but they all were going into medical school my dad was a doctor and they were just marching into medical schools if there was like no even looking around and and I think maybe being the last kid the youngest kid I had a little bit more freedom. My dad always said, you know, he would bet me that I'd wind up in medical school, but thank God, you know, because if I made some of the mistakes I've made in my life, they would have had more serious consequences. But, um, but I was really drawn to reading and writing. I have shelves filled with journals and 
my my two siblings who did become psychiatrists, they were both English majors for a time and they would feed me books. So I developed that lifelong habit of really loving to read. So all that, um, all that poured into it. And then I think that there was also a certain oppositional defiance disorder that, that might've had a, uh, uh, you know, an influence and I'm not necessarily diagnosing that, but just saying that I was very, very anti-authority and so what really drew me to foreign reporting was the fact that when I was growing up, I saw the United States pouring money into all these dictators in Latin America, especially, who were just brutalizing their people and stealing money. And it just outraged me. That was my cause, celeb. You know, so I determined that I would get myself down there and, and write about them, which I was lucky enough to do. Yeah, I'm not surprised that um, a lot of the jobs that are recommended for people with ADHD. Journalism is always on there as well as social worker, you know, that, that sense of, a, of social justice, I think is very strong, that empathy, that uh, wanting to help others. I think my theory is that it comes from living a child, you know, living a life as a child, feeling so fundamentally misunderstood, right. And feeling so much self-doubt and feeling a sense of wrongdoing, I guess, you know, in our, in our guts that we, tend to want to restore justice on some level. That's a great point. Yeah, I think that's really true. I think also what might be a factor is that uh, a lot of us in in those years, 60s, 70s, grew up in families where there was like an authoritarian father. (laughs) So you're rebelling against, I mean, that was my case for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I had two very, very uh, high achieving older brothers who were went to, you know, one of them went to MIT, the other one went to McGill, they were straight A scholarship kids. And I came along and my parents didn't know what to do with me, (laughs) you know, and so my mother was very much sort of like, well, you can't all, you, you know, all of your kids can't be successful. Like she just would sort of pat me on the head and be like, well, you know, you've got street smarts, not book smarts. That's what she used to say. <laughs> and I think what really appealed to me about the newspaper environment, the newsroom, was that we were all this group of misfits who, yeah, like that we were all very bright and very quick-witted, but all like couldn't really function in normal <laughs> elements of society, like getting straight A's and that kind of thing. And so I think, yeah, I see, I see so much of why that that appeals that that devil's advocate and yeah yeah sticking it to the man and rolling up your shirt <laughs> sleeves and all of that was so appealing yeah I have a good friend who would say that uh, reporters are mostly depressed people who get a dopamine hit out of filing a story you know so <laughs> you know yeah. how it feels yeah <laughs> you know I do yes I absolutely see all of that with with deadlines and you know kind of going home and knowing that you've done your job and then you can come back and what's you know what's happening tomorrow it's book writing I mean that's what fascinates me how on earth as such a prolific writer what is you know what works for you what structures work for you in terms of being able to continually write books because that feels like antithetical to the ADHD brain no no you know and and like my my mom and my older sister my older sister stopped doing it and my mom unfortunately is gone but uh they both would tell me all the time that I didn't have ADHD because I was a pretty good student and I was pretty productive but I think with girls especially we just um we we just developed that anxiety disorder to to work that much harder and to just kind of white knuckle through it um but with books, it's a different thing. I think with books, 
I write nonfiction. I don't know if I could ever write a novel and keep all the different parts in my head, but with nonfiction, it's, I have to tell you, it's actually a pretty easy thing to break it into little chunks, you know, even a, um, a memoir with, with my latest book, it was sort of a memoir and a true crime uh, story, mothers and murders. That was harder. I mean, it was more novelistic because I was weaving a story together of a, of a murder case and my coming of age as a reporter but um, and there were all these elements and characters, but I think the same rule does apply that the more you break it into bite-sized chunks and the hardest part is is figuring out a system to do that. But once you have the system, it's just tasks. Mm-hmm. And having lots of deadlines from your editor. That's right. Or myself for <laughs> superimposed. Yeah. Deadlines help. Now, did you feel like you had any sort of undiagnosed learning disorder growing up? Or, you know, was that something you thought about? Or were you just sort of like, this was my quirky self? Because I sort of felt like, I don't, I, I, my mother has also passed away. So she's like the one person I wanted to talk about this with the most um, because there was so much that we struggled with together with me growing up, especially with doing so poorly in school. And, um, and I always sort of felt like I had looking back, I think like I, I had some sort of learning disorder and why did nobody see those signs? Um, what what do you think you had? Thing? I you don't know. Like- I mean, I thought I had maybe dyslexia or, um, you know, I, I felt like I, it was really easy for me to take copious notes and research when it was like big projects. Right. Um, I think about like my honors thesis, I literally flew to Sri Lanka for a summer to do my, I was, I took political science in university and I wanted to do, you know, I went to university. I'm old enough that there was still wasn't the internet. So we were doing like, you know, um, researching in the library and there just wasn't any first, you know, there wasn't enough material for this thesis idea that I had about secession. And so I've, I decided to fly there and do this research project. And I just took notes and interviews and did as much as I possibly could over the four months of my summer. And I came back and I just had this pile and I didn't know what to do with it. Like I just couldn't organize though the information. And I just felt like sometimes you just get too much information. And, and I saw that so much in my schooling where, where I would get really, really interested in a topic and really, um, try to learn as much as possible about it, but the output just, I could never get to that part. And then I either wouldn't hand it in or would hand do a really crappy job and, and throw something together. And, um, so those are those moments where I look back and I think, I, I don't know what that could have, you know, I didn't know enough about, uh, ADHD or my own brain to, to even be able to pinpoint like what that learning, you know, Do you think it's a learning disorder or is it just, I think the the big thing for me about ADHD is that there's such a low threshold for boredom and um, and it's so exciting to run around, meet new people, collect all that information. This, the same friend of mine who said the thing about dopamines um, had this phrase stuck on input, which I used in buzz because I, I, the input is so much more fun than the output, the output you're all alone, Right. So it might be something as simple as that, that it just wasn't as much fun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think about that too with accomplishments, you know, how how difficult, I mean, uh, I'd be curious, you know, with how, what are your thoughts on, on imposter syndrome or, you know, feeling like you are so highly accomplished. I mean, you've got, you've won a Pulitzer and yet... Do you feel like, oh, like that? Yeah, I did that. That's boring now. Can we talk about something else? Because, you know, like I feel like sometimes 
um, it's very difficult to sit with our accomplishments as well. You know, when, when you, when you, you manage to do something, you're on to the next thing immediately. And I, that's my other theory is that I think that's why we tend to have very low self-esteem because we're it, our own accomplishments tend to immediately become boring for us. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, no, I think that's a, a point I'm, throughout my life. You know, I'm proud of a lot that I've accomplished, but I always have my own version of it. Like I got into Stanford, but I was on a waiting list. I won a Pulitzer, but I did it with two other people. It wasn't a real Pulitzer. You know? <laughs> and so and so in my grandiose moments, I'll think, whoa, you know, I deserve that Pulitzer. And then in other moments, you know, it's just like, well, my shameful secret. Right. And uh, I don't know. I think people with ADHD, I mean, if you've ever encountered somebody with the beginnings of dementia, unfortunately, and they cover it all the time. Right. Um, it's just and they invest so much energy in pretending that they're not forgetting things. So I think somewhere along the line, it became a point of pride with me to talk openly about mistakes and humiliating moments, because I could use the fact that I have accomplished some things to um, normalize them a little bit, make them try to make them a little less shameful for other people. So I, I will boast about really humiliating stuff, <laughs> cringeworthy stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, and I think I'm, you know, and I think that that's such a wonderful way to to destigmatize ADHD as well. You know, to you know, I had somebody DM me recently complaining about the fact that I don't know if they were complaining or if this was a backhanded comment, but basically they were saying, you know, your guests are so accomplished and you all seem so, you know, um, together, you, you know, insinuating that we couldn't possibly have ADHD. Exactly. <laughs> uh, no, you know, that's really hard. That, that, right. To realize that stigma yeah. still exists for so many of us, you know, where, you know, where are the hot messes? And I'm like, oh, believe me, like all we talk about <laughs> is what a hot mess we are. I'd like to take a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know I am a big proponent of therapy. Therapy provides me the best opportunity for verbal processing, something that is so important for my kind of brain and my sense of self. What I love about BetterHelp is that it's not a crisis line, it's not self-help, it is professional therapy that's done securely online from the comfort of your home. They assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and it's available for clients worldwide, so you get access to a broad range of expertise that might not be available to you locally. It also tends to be more affordable than traditional offline therapy, and financial aid is available. If you visit their website and read their testimonials, there are actually quite a few reviews that specifically reference Help with ADHD. As a special offer for listeners of the Women and ADHD podcast, you'll get 10% off your first month. Simply sign up at betterhelp.com slash women ADHD. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash women ADHD. And there's a link in the show notes. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Any other parents out there who have struggled to instill good financial habits into their kids? I know I have. And that's why I'm so excited to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode, Go Henry by Acorns, the smart debit card and app for kids 6 through 18. With Go Henry, kids can learn about money, set spending and saving goals, and even track chores and earn allowance money right within the app. They learn the value of money by using their Go Henry debit cards, while we as parents can set spend limits and help guide their journey while staying informed every step of the way. It gives me so much peace of mind to know that I'm using a smart tool to proactively teach my kids about money and prepare them for future success. 
set your kids up for success and get started today at gohenry.com slash women ADHD. Again, that's gohenry.com slash women ADHD. TNCs apply, renews from $4.99 per month unless canceled. But that, I feel like that what uh, this is a good segue to talk about your most recent book, Mothers and Murderers, um, because it you know it's the the learning from an error, I guess, right? I mean, you know, it was sort of an ADHD relatable impulsive <laughs> mistake, right? <laughs> yeah, and um, and I did learn. I mean, it changed my life. It actually, if I trace it back, the path that it put me on, which was a different path than I've been on, um, was one that I just absolutely have loved. I think that indirectly it led to my meeting my my husband, having the kids, um, going to Latin America. It it just, um, but at, in the time when we make mistakes, and actually I just did a, a TED talk about this, about what people with ADHD can teach other people coming out of the pandemic, because um, the message is that we know better than other people how often everybody makes mistakes, you know, and we know what to do with mistakes better because we make so many of them so that you should, if you're feeling overwhelmed by all the information coming out of the pandemic, you should talk to somebody with ADHD because even if we don't follow the best advice, we know what it is, right? So, um, where was I? So, um, the, the story in Mothers and Murders is um, I made this really, really, really dumb mistake. I basically charged a woman with murder where she hadn't been charged um, in, a, in a newspaper article. And she sued us, me and the newspaper, for $11 million. And I thought my career was absolutely over. I was just less than two years of working at my first newspaper. And I just felt for sure I'm going to be blackballed and out of a job and never able to work again. And um was a really horrible feeling for quite a long time. But, you know, I think that um, if you're lucky with ADHD, you, and, and a lot of this um, means that you're able to face things clearly, because I think the worst thing about making mistakes like this is denying that it happened or blaming somebody else or, you know, or just forgetting it, right? If, if you, and the impulse to do those things is so strong. Um, so if you are actually able to face your mistakes clearly and know that everybody makes them every minute of every day, um, you can grow from them. They're, they're, they're here to teach you. So I think that's what that book was about. Just the, the difficulty, but the necessity of looking that mistake clearly in the face and trying to figure out how it happened. I do. Yeah. I, I feel like I have talked a lot with some of my guests about grit and the ability to really kind of pick yourself up by the bootstraps. And that is something I think that we are quite adept at just, yeah. If, if it's because well, I don't we, know about we, I don't know about all people with ADHD. I wouldn't say like all people with ADHD have energy or grit. I think a lot of people are wiped out by ADHD, which is one reason that I do talk about this stuff. I mean, the people that you don't see on the podcast are people who've had crippling anxiety disorders or unable to produce anything or, um, have just decided that they are indeed a complete failure. And so that's why this, the, there's this whole faction of people who will say ADHD is a gift, right? It's a superpower. And I think we can get really easily carried away by that. Um, it can be harmful in a way. Yes, look at the, um, the a lot of the things that come with ADHD, like energy and excitement and um, just interestingness are, are great but they, they don't always come for everyone. And a lot of people are just weighed over by it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think there has been such an incredible disparity too with some of my guests in terms of what accommodations they were given uh, throughout life. And, um, you know, I've noticed that a lot of the women I've spoken to who were diagnosed with something like dyslexia or another comorbidity younger in life and were given those accommodations had a very different outcome from some of us who, you know, just kind of crashed and bashed our way through our education or, you know, like it really, yeah, it dictates kind of your narratives. And again, like talking to people who, you know, their economic situations are completely different or if their, their family situations were completely like a, a lot of this, I feel like the more I talk about ADHD, the less I understand in terms of, is this, when we talk about ADHD, are we talking about the current kind of traits uh, and behaviors that are being exhibited in the moment, or are we talking about a neurodiversity, you know, a, a neurodivergent brain that is seeking dopamine, and and our environments were so are so different, and how we are nurtured are very are so different. Um, some of us, yeah, you, you know, I think it's it, there's a lot of privilege in, in calling it a, a superpower for sure when so many people didn't have that experience or still aren't having that experience. And so it, I think we, you know, there's still so much confusion about even what are we talking about when we're talking about ADHD? Are we talking about, you know, what, what behaviors you're exhibiting or are we talking about the brain behind the behaviors? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think it depends well, definitely. on mm-hmm. which, which book you're reading or which expert <laughs> you're talking to. Um, now, what would you say, when you when you talk about ADHD or when you sort of think about it, are you thinking about it like it's a uh, in terms of the brain? I mean, that's what I, I get a sense when you talk about the dopamine deficiency and, and the dopamine seeking that this is kind of a genetic uh, neurotype as opposed to behaviors being exhibited. Well, I think the behaviors are the result of what's going on in your brain, right? And uh, there's there's so much research that shows that it's got a huge genetic component. I think it's um, more than schizophrenia, but just a little less than height, you know, in terms of its heritability. And in in the book Buzz, I talked about my great grandfather. Sorry about the dog barking. Who um, who he immigrated from Poland, so he had this restlessness that that saved our family because he got the family out of Poland before World War II. But then he went back to Poland to collect um, an inheritance and gambled it all away in Monte Carlo. So I figured he was the original ADHD person in my family tree, or, you know, there were probably people before him, but I could trace it back to him. And I, I do have a feeling that my father had some, um, it, but, you know, when you when you look into this stuff that you get a genetic predisposition and then your environment could influence it quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So I know that there were things in my environment that probably um, increased it. <laughs> So there was a lot of stress and conflict when it when I was growing up. We had a very loving family, but a, a little wacky too. So um, I, I think if you have somebody with the predisposition who's raised in a, a constant calm environment, their behavior might end up being quite different. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Have you heard of Steve Hinshaw? No, I will definitely. Yeah, he's somebody definitely you should you should look into. I did a Washington Post story on girls with ADHD that cites his research, but you might be particularly interested in, in knowing that his research showed clearly that a lot of girls with 
a high proportion of girls with ADHD go on to attempt suicide, to cut themselves, to there's a lot of really bad outcomes when, when it's not diagnosed and not dealt with mm-hmm. in girls. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I certainly feel like I've had many conversations about like self-medicating and our, you know, proclivity for uh, addictive behaviors and um, eating disorders. I mean, I certainly, yeah, I struggled with binge eating and had no idea until my diagnosis that this was extremely common um, and, and was fascinating to kind of think about why and yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's been really interesting. And now I have a son and a daughter. So it's been fascinating. You know, my daughter's 14 and my son is 10. Oh, wow. and so of course I'm like looking at everything they do with this fine tooth comb because, <laughs> uh, you know, they both are very different. And yet I think, you know, I, I see tendency, I see their neurodivergent tendencies in both of them in so many fascinating ways. Um, but yeah, thank you for that. I will, um, I'll look into that. Um, this is sort of, I, I've realized that this podcast is my research. <laughs> this is how I'm, this is how I learn best. I want to take a minute to let you know about the new women and ADHD online community. One thing I hear time and time again from listeners of this podcast is, wow, these interviews make me feel so much less alone. And I totally agree. I believe finding our people and sharing our lived experiences is such an integral part of successfully managing our ADHD. So I've put together this online community for listeners of the podcast where we can come together in a safe, intimate environment and make friends and obsessively ponder our neurodivergent brains with other brilliant like-minded women. And we never have to apologize for simply being ourselves. With your membership, you also have access to all sorts of exclusive content like early access to this podcast, written transcripts of the episodes, and a free copy of my audiobook, Worth It, A Journey to Food and Body Freedom. You also have the option to upgrade at any time in order to participate in regular body doubling sessions and live member hangouts on Zoom with me and other members where we discuss life with our ADHD brains. So head over to womenandadhd.com to join us or find the link in the show notes. All right. I hope to see you there soon. One question I like to ask everyone, because I don't have an answer for it. Uh, so it's kind of unfair that I'm asking everybody else. But the, um, if you could rename ADHD to something else, if you had a chance, would you call it something else? Because I feel like mm. that so many women especially are, are I think, put off by that acronym and and don't relate to that on any level in terms of their lived experience. What suggestions are you getting? Cause I'm not, <laughs> none are coming to mind. I know, right. Well, yeah. I mean, I think the vast uh, suggestion is great. Although my only criticism with vast is that it's, uh, it's not Googleable. Vast is, was put forth in ADHD 2.0, but I don't think it's Ned Hallowell's original. Uh, I don't think he came up with that acronym, but it's variable attention stimulus trait. Oh my and God. so I think the big difference uh-huh. is changing disorder to trait, uh, which I think disorder can be really, you know, problematic um, and you know, variable attention as opposed to deficit. And, um, you know, it still doesn't, it still doesn't address the emotional piece, which I think is, you know, not only not in the DSM, but I think for most women, the biggest element is the emotional piece of, 
that, um, you know, the, the rumination and the rejection sensitivity and the difficulty with relationships and feeling like you're a bad woman, you know, <laughs> like just that the inability to perform mundane domestic tasks and what that <laughs> does to your self-esteem as a wife and mother, you know? And so, uh, I think that at the end of the day, I, the only thing I can come up with is dopamine deficiency because <laughs> I think really that, you know, all of these seemingly random, um, struggles that we have can be kind of traced back to this one, you know, sense of easily bored and, and novelty seeking tendencies. And that's why we don't want to do the dishes. That's why we don't want to fold our laundry. And it's why we switch jobs every two years. You know, we have difficulty with authority. Like at the end of the day, it always comes back to the dopamine. (laughs) (laughs) So that was sort of my, you know, I feel like that would be my, what I would call it. Um, But I I don't know. I'm curious. I just feel like there's got to be a better way that we could sum this up into a a diagnosis that people can, women especially can relate to, as opposed to just Hmm. saying, oh, you're just depressed. (laughs) Here's some meds. (laughs) And then we say, well, the meds aren't working. And then, you know, what happened to me was I was on the depression and anxiety, this cocktail of of antidepressants and they weren't working. And so my doctor just kept upping the dose. And then I, and then I kept thinking, well, if it's this bad on the medication, imagine how bad it'll be off the medication. And I kind of just fell into that line of thinking for so many years before really this aha moment of, of, oh my God, stimulants. <laughs> <laughs> so they've made a big difference. Uh. Well, actually um, I tried them and I'm not taking them on any, in any regular way now, because I felt like I had actually, you know, have come to um, a lot of different lifestyle changes that made sense to me, like morning exercise and, oh, yeah. uh, and caffeine and, <laughs> caffeine always you know know, yeah and so like um I think I've just been able to kind of adjust my adjust my behaviors in a way that I haven't really felt like I needed the medication um I do have it in my in my desk bar (laughs) (laughs) but it's such a pain and it's so expensive to get Uh you know it's I I don't use it on a daily basis uh because I I you know I think I it doesn't occur to me that I might want it until it's too late in the day for me to take it. <laughs> for me, that's the great irony of my stimulant medication. Um, but I'm also not on an SSRI anymore either. You know, like that's, I'm not on anything for the first time in wow. 20 years. So, yeah. Well, I don't see any shame in taking whatever medication you need, but there's also so much research that's so strongly in favor of exercise which I think that's one of the few things that has really added to my own resilience, such as it is. I've always been an exercise nut. I've been addicted to it and I can't spend a day without doing something. And I definitely feel the effect on my, on my brain ability to think clearly after I've done something aerobic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel like you articulate so well that thought process and that journey with medication, uh, you know, for children as a parent and, and feeling, you know, like just the mistrust of the drug companies and mistrust of the people who are working with the, you know, the scientists who are being paid by the drug companies and also the long-term effects, you know, and all of that. And so I really appreciate you kind of going through that in your book. Well, I really came out on the side of 
if it works for you, it's fine. They're, they seem to be safe. But, you know, like you say, there is so much um, really not great news about the, the some of the research being done and what drug companies will do that it could reasonably put you off. I think they shoot themselves in the foot, frankly. Uh, yeah, that was a really interesting part. All of the stuff about Chad, I didn't know about that. <laughs> I hope that people are listening and they haven't read their book, they, they, they will pause this episode and go listen to. I listened, uh, so it was lovely to hear you read it too. Uh, Thank so you. I hope people will go and listen to it. It's a great memoir. I'm curious now, It's been it's been 16 years. How is your oldest son doing? He's got to be in his 20, mid-20s at this point, right? I'm so happy to say... <laughs> he's got a fiance he's got a great job he's um he seems to be really happy you know so that's so I'm very happy to say that you know that phrase you're only as happy as your least happy child and for a while both of us were pretty miserable Mm -hmm. but um yeah he's he's a super super interesting kid Uh, you know he's the kind of kid who taught himself Russian um and he travels around the world. He's, he's really adventurous. He's, he's, he's pretty great. And my other son too. Yeah. Oh yes. Not he quite. was delightful too. Yeah. Now, uh, although I kept listening to the book thinking like Max must have ADHD as well. Like, I just, <laughs> no, no, like, no. I don't um, think so. just because he was, you know, I just think of that, that joie de vivre you know I associate that <laughs> with with ADHD maybe that's my own bias uh, <laughs> joie de vivre. why don't we just call it that <laughs> right that's a great name actually that's true um no and I think I you know so much of the adult diagnosis experience is a lot of that grief of feeling like oh I, you know so much of my life could have been different if I had known and so I think it, it's lovely to watch this younger generation growing up feeling like, you know, knowing that they are not broken somehow, the way I think so many of, so many women I and interview, and so uh, certainly my experience, feeling like there was something just wrong with us this whole time, and and so it's encouraging. Yeah, to like I say, I resist that whole, you know, it's a gift, it's a gift kind of course, but I really do like the neurodiversity idea that that society needs all kinds of brains. And if we can just find ways to be more comfortable with our own individual way of working, then that's terrific. And we all contribute something. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, And that we all are kind of on this. It's really, I feel like there's, you know, when you talk about disabilities, the issue is always really about accommodation. You know, the disability is only there because you don't have the accommodation that is needed, you know? And so you can think about that with, with neurodivergency as well. I mean, oh, did I, did I mention you talked about the education system in your book too, which I think is also really another important part of, of parenting children with ADHD is the public (laughs) navigating public school. Speaking of lack of accommodations, uh, (laughs) you know, but that how so much of this can, so much of our experience would be so different if we were kind of met where we were. I like to think yeah. of it as when I explain ADHD to my children, I explain it by using the example of being left-handed where I say, you know, if you're left-handed and you can't cut and everybody says, well, why just use the scissors properly? And you don't understand why they're not working. <laughs> they're working for everybody else. Um, you know, or you're sitting at a desk that's not accommodated for you and you don't understand. Nobody's telling you why this desk feels uncomfortable for you and, and you're, 
you're trying desperately to write with the right hand and you just can't do it. So that's how it's I crazy. tend to look at it. Yeah, it's crazy that schools just expect kids to be able to sit for hours at a time, um, you know, just processing one subject after another when so many kids aren't, they just can't do it. And it's, it's misery. I remember just being completely miserable. I mean, I got the work done, but <laughs> it was torture. Oh, I know. Yeah. And, and again, I, I think it's, it's just getting harder and harder with the more, the bigger the classrooms are and the, the lack of leverage that children, that teachers have anymore. You know, mm-hmm. I think the recess is the first thing that's taken away when somebody is misbehaving, which just defeat, you know, which is the, yeah, they still the worst do things thing you like can that. do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's a whole other issue, but um, mm-hmm. I don't want to keep you any longer. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you, Kitty. It's really been interesting to talk with you and good luck with your podcast. And there you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. Also, you know, we ADHDers crave feedback and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. If you're a fan of the podcast, please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much and I get it, then just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may still be struggling and don't even know why. And if you'd like to find out more about me and my one-on-one coaching for women with ADHD, head over to womenandadhd.com coaching. And you can always find that link in the show notes. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered that she is not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD and she is now on the path to understanding her neurodiversity and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then. A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109.